Hello, welcome back to IVFU. So I am strangely very excited about this episode. I mean, I don't know, maybe it's not so strange, but I've mentioned a few times that I'm not a religious person, and yet I do understand that faith and religion can be critical to people needing support with infertility. So today, I'm very excited to have you meet Rabbi Rachel Brown and Reverend Julia Offinger, who are here to talk with us about the role of faith, truth, and love, not only with those they counsel, but also in their own personal experiences with alternative family making. So here we go. A priest and a rabbi walk into a podcast. I'm in love with you. you. Sam, are you in a closet? I am literally in my closet. Yeah, I'm literally, these are my clothes. Nice. These, those are my husband's Dungeons and Dragons miniatures. Nice. I'm because li- it's the quietest part of my house. Yeah. So, you know, that is great. Yeah. And Sam, how old is your child? He turned two in February. Oh, wow. Okay. Yes. And I'm 48. So I am 48 with a oh, two year old. Wow. Okay. And that's my future. There I you know have that it. one. That is your future. So yes. I, my baby was born when I was 46. There you go. We're in that category. Yeah. (laughs) So hi, everyone. First of all, I just want to thank you both so much for joining me for this. I am very particularly excited about this episode. I feel it's a topic that has been very overlooked in our previous season. And um, it's a source of support and nurturing that I think so many people turn to, and I've just sort of rudely ignored it. So I'm very happy that you're both here to talk about it. So Rabbi Rachel Brown, I want to start with you. You are involved at Temple Beth Shalom in Hudson, Ohio, Director of Education, and also Share Tikva. Share Tikva, yeah. Jari Tikva in Beechwood, Ohio, and also co-founder and director of Camp Timbrel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is for Jewish girls, correct? It's for it's a Jewish girls empowerment camp. Yeah. So I um I was ordained in 2005. So I was a career changer. Also, I got married when I was 40 years old, okay. which is on the older side mm-hmm. for getting married and for having babies. And my husband also carries a, he has a Jewish genetic mutation Mm. that results in a disorder and it's pretty rare, but he has it. Mm -hmm. It turns out I carry the gene. I don't know if you- Is this the Ashkenazi Jewish situation or is this something in addition? It's the Ashkenazi Jewish situation. So we both carry the same (laughs) gene. It's a dominant gene. And we learned when a copy of the gene comes from each potential parent, there aren't even viable embryos. Mm. And eventually the doctor said, the only way you're ever going to have babies is if you use um, a donor egg. And um, people are very private Mm -hmm. and it's very tender. But one of the women in my Jewish education group said, well, there's this organization Resolve, Mm -hmm. which is for women or I guess couples who have experienced or are experiencing infertility. And I joined Resolve and Resolve sent me to an organization called Parents Via Egg Donation. And Mm -hmm. I found a very strong supportive community there. Uh, Meanwhile, you know, I was out with my congregation. They knew that we were trying to have a baby. So people felt comfortable, both congregants and friends and, you know, whoever read the article that one of us wrote, um, felt very comfortable to come to us and to talk about their own journey, Mm -hmm. trying to grow their family. That's great. Um, 
And so I want to turn to you, Reverend Julia, where you are now and what your experience has been in the fertility world. Absolutely. Um, so my name is Julia Offinger, and I'm an Episcopal priest. I work at Grace Church in New York, just south of Union Square. Um, I was ordained to the priesthood in 2018. My mother is an Episcopal priest, and I grew up in the church. And uh, I, I love being a priest, and I love the Episcopal church. I am married to Caitlin Offinger, and we live in Brooklyn with our son, Harry, who's 18 months old now. And so because I'm married to a woman, the first option we began exploring was asking a very close friend, actually the friend who introduced us, um, who is a gay man, to be our known donor. Nick is our known donor. Nick's partner, Jesse, was the one who really said, like, we should do this. And so there were two things that were really important to Nick and Jesse was one was that Nick not be a father mm-hmm. to Harry um, and always be understood to be the donor, mm-hmm. but not to you know use the word father um, mm-hmm. or have that understanding of his relationship. Um, but also that his parents be involved in the child's life as grandparents. Oh, interesting. Wow. So that is an interesting that was something that like took a lot of work and defining with all of our parents. My parents are alive and married and Caitlin's parents are alive and married and Nick's parents are alive and married. So that's six grandparents. Wow. There's a lot of preparation <laughs> while Caitlin was pregnant. Spoiler alert. It worked. So now, yeah. you know, it's been 18 months with Harry being born in this way. Wow. Both of us had very interesting times navigating through the, the baby making medical <laughs> complex um, as people who had chosen to um, create babies in this sort of like way that people don't really talk about. And then, you know, the reason I was so excited to be a part of this conversation is just talking about the theological questions and the sort of guilt and trepidation that people feel as they approach this process and kind of trying to do my part to undo a lot of really damaging theology that exists, um, that people think, quote unquote, Christians think about IVF and third-party reproductive assistance. And in both of your religions, there's a huge range of conservative, progressive, liberal. I mean, obviously, you know, totally by chance, you are both women. That wasn't something I specifically sought out for this interview, but maybe it was naturally deigned to be that way. Or, you know, there's a, there's, I think a reason why we all found each other for this, but, and for both of you, as you were looking for donors, did faith was that important to you? Were you looking for Jewish donors, Rachel? Were you looking for Episcopal yeah, so donors? I, right. So that's a great question. My husband and I specifically didn't want a Jewish donor mm. because we both carry a Jewish genetic mutation. Oh, that's interesting. Because I know in the Jewish religion, it's a very genetic religion. You can convert, but it it's a lot of work and and it's seen as coming through the mother's line versus in Christianity, I feel like it's, I don't know if this is the right word, but I feel like it's more of a chosen religion. Yeah, that's actually, you know, it was interesting when you said to Rachel, oh, did, were you trying to get a Jewish donor? And to me, an Episcopal donor is like, oh my gosh, that didn't even cross my mind, truly, because, <laughs> um, you know, when you're born, it's like, 
to be a Christian, you get baptized. Like that's it. So, Mm. but my assumption would be that that would be very important to someone who is Jewish. So I I was interested to hear your answer, Rachel. Yeah. So um, the Israeli government would, the Israeli rabbinate would like it to be important to someone who is Jewish, but Sam pointed out something which is very interesting. You said it's genetic, but the Talmud, the the body of Jewish law that was invented in the mid ages and much earlier, you know, from the year zero, really, or even mm-hmm. or BC, um, didn't know about genes. Ah, uh, that's true. Uh, and right. the reason that that I learned that um, religion comes from the mother, you know, now in the reform movement, which is a more liberal branch of Judaism, mother or father, matrilineal or patrilineal descent is recognized. But when um, when the Romans were taking over that part of the world and raping the Jewish women, you couldn't say religion came from the father because nobody, sometimes you didn't know who the father was. Mm-hmm. So for, I guess, for good political reasons, they made religion come from the mother, but it's it's about who sure. gives birth to the baby. Right. Yeah. It's not about where the genes come from because they didn't know about genes. Right. That's a really good point. Yeah. And so when I when I read the responses to this question that are coming out of the Orthodox world in Israel, and they say that if you want to have a baby with an egg donor, and so the egg donor has to be Jewish or the baby has to go through a conversion process, it kind of makes me nuts. Mm-hmm. You know, it makes me absolutely nuts. But the other thing is, and it's Sam, Sam, you said this too, which I thought was so interesting because rabbis who work with conversion students ask those students to be committed and to be committed, you have to learn a lot. And so it sounds like a complicated process because you're really getting the equivalent of an associate's degree in Judaism. <laughs> right. You know, you have to really study a lot. You go to classes, right. you study, you practice, you you know, but to convert is really very simple. Mm. You go to a, a mikvah, which is a, a pool of water, and you immerse and you say a few blessings. And if it's a boy, you know, there's the matter of circumcision, but then it's done. And in Jewish tradition, there are communities that are snobbish or, or prejudiced. But once a person converts to Judaism, they have the same status as someone who was born Jewish. Oh, that's interesting. So if you, for example, if you and your husband had wanted your child to be Jewish and you had a surrogate who wasn't Jewish, so the baby's born, you wait until his um, umbilical stump falls off and you take him to the mikvah and, you know, and you you have to circumcise too. But then you take him to the mikvah and boom, he's Jewish. And isn't that so interesting how these religions line up? Because Julie is talking about baptism and you're born and you're baptized and there you are. That's right. It's almost the same. I mean, it's minus a small physical situation if you're a boy. But otherwise, (laughs) I always laugh from growing up with both of those. My mother was Christian and my father was Jewish. And my sister one year gave up bagels for Lent. Which, which is just sort of a <laughs> perfect example of the yeah. complete interweaving of those two things for us. Um, so do you find that when you're helping people or working on your own family creation, are there basic rules regarding infertility and intervention and treatments? I'll start with you, Julia. And I know, again, there's a span. There are going to be probably fundamentalist Christians, born-again Christian, all different layers of people that believe different things. Do you ever rub up against those things? Or how do you yes. figure out how to interpret that? So there is a problem in progressive Christianity, which I would put much of the Episcopal Church under the category of progressive Christianity of the mainline denominations. It's certainly 
a progressive one. And being a progressive Christian today in America right now, and maybe for the past, let's say, like since Reagan, mm-hmm. um, has meant that the dominant voice in the culture about what Christianity is, is different than the progressive Christian viewpoint on a lot of things. Mm -hmm. So that's within Protestantism. And then there's a whole Roman Catholic question, which is like a whole separate thing. You know, so the Roman Catholic church works one way, which is the Pope says what God means and that's what goes right. Mm -hmm. And there's of course a diversity of opinion and lived experience within being a Catholic, but there is one stance on everything. And Mm -hmm. that is the Pope's stance. And, um, IVF is not allowed in the Roman Catholic church. That does not mean that there aren't Roman Catholics who do IVF, right? Right. But it's not allowed, right? So you can, you can speak definitively about what the Roman Catholic stance is on certain things. Within Protestantism, there isn't that centralized authority. So in the Episcopal church, there's three ways of understanding God. One is the Bible one is tradition and one is reason, your own brain, right? Ah. So as important as the Bible and understanding God is your own thoughts about this. And as important as the Bible and your own reason, your own mind is the tradition, what links you um, to your ancestors and and forward. So as an Episcopalian, as an Episcopal (laughs) priest, it's a constant job of re-educating and educating people who are in our parish and want to be a part of the Episcopal Church about how we understand God and God's work in our lives. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so for fertility, right, that question is like, you know, so many people come to us priests and say, or to the church and say, I know IVF isn't allowed, but I'm going to do it. Or, or you know, help me think wow. through this, right? Um, abortion would be another example, right? Where like the Episcopal church does not have a stance on abortion. It just doesn't, right? It's about discernment and figuring out God's will for you. And there's not a a notion that all abortion is bad, right? That's the Catholic church. And then that's an evangelical (laughs) adoption of a Catholic stance. So do you feel that people come to you after they've gone to other places? Do they have a hesitancy to come to you when they they want that support through through you, through the church, but they're afraid that they're breaking the rules or they're, you know, doing something wrong. Yeah. yeah. Not in all cases, but um, but I think that there is an idea in general that religion is restrictive and religion has very strong ideas about what you should do, and that there they often there's a fear that they're coming from a place of already having broken the rules or wanting to break the rules. And right. that's just like not how <laughs> I try to frame these questions for people. Right. And it, it could be a barrier for, of entry for them to come to you. There probably are people who don't come to you because they're afraid that they're exactly. already doing exactly. it wrong. Yeah. And I yeah. think what really resonated with me with what Rachel was saying was part of what Caitlin and I felt very strongly about was talking openly about how mm-hmm. we were forming our family and making our child because there's so much sort of like not talking about the reality of what it is to go through this process. And so many people are going through it silently and not talking about what they're doing. And the more we normalize talking about all the different ways that, that children are made, the better. Exactly. And Rachel, I know you said the same thing. Nobody was talking about it. 
And yeah. and you guys did this. So based in Judaism, where, where are the rules? Are there any rules? How does that work as far as fertility treatments and options? Yeah. So, you know, the the Torah doesn't talk about getting pregnant any other way than, you know. When a man and a woman love each other. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just yeah. kidding. Yeah. No, I mean, you know, that it's it's not a joke. The Torah, the 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 Jewish Bible, which is more than the Torah, the Jewish Bible doesn't recognize fertility treatments. Mm-hmm. The Torah does say you have to be fruitful and multiply, and the Talmud puts that requirement on the man, not the woman. Mm. So if you go into the more traditionally observant communities, Orthodox communities, very very observant. Mm-hmm. You will find that there are men who actually will divorce their wives if their wives aren't getting pregnant so they can marry a different woman so that they can fulfill the commandment to be fruitful and multiply. Right. And of course, if um, the problem is with the man, which is equal percentage that science knows about, yes. they're just going to keep doing that over and over again, I guess. Yes, they're not going to have will. much love. Yeah. yeah. But the command is to be fruitful and multiply. And I shouldn't say, let me say it like this. In the liberal Jewish world, there are many people who don't care what Jewish law says. Mm -hmm. You know, they're not observant that way. They're culturally Jewish. They like the rituals, but they really live in the modern world, which doesn't necessarily abide by Jewish law. Mm -hmm. And then there are women who I know of who are in my um, parents via egg donation network. Who are very, very observant, and they will not take any of their concerns to their own rabbis because they know what their rabbi is going to say. Mm. And I guess that's a lot like what happens in the Catholic world versus, let's say, the Episcopalian or, or the the more liberal Christian world. And I I love Jewish law. It's the reason I went to rabbinical school. I, so <laughs> I know a little bit about Jewish law. And it's not clear to me that there is any place in Jewish law that says that you can't use donor gametes mm-hmm. in order to have babies. Mm-hmm. It doesn't say that anywhere. There is discussion in the Talmud about um, if a man ejaculates into water in a lake or a pool and then the woman goes swimming, you know, if she gets pregnant, what, what's the status of the baby if she's not married? Because there are different statuses of babies if a woman is married or not married. But that had nothing to do with actually the mechanics of getting pregnant. You know, and you can't, you know, we know this. You can't get pregnant if you go swimming in a pool where a man ejaculates. <laughs> right. What if? <laughs> right. What if? <laughs> right. <laughs> but I think a lot of it, again, comes back to the fact that much of Jewish text was written before people knew about genes and biology and, you know, could access this information. So, yes. And you will, I just want to, I just want to add this on. You will find in the ultra Orthodox Jewish world, a very strict thinking about siring children. Mm -hmm. And if a woman gets pregnant using sperm that is not her husband's, then the status of the baby is going to be different. But there is no historic or biblical base for that. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. So have you both encountered when people need help and they need nurturing and coping mechanisms and they need support from their faith, from their religion, from their religious leaders? Um, are there pieces of scripture, pieces of text, religious text that you can point to for them that can help them if they're in that why me place or, you know, depending on what their relationship is to God, but, you know, if maybe they're doubting that God exists because this thing is happening to them or what did they do wrong to cause this thing to happen to them or how can they fix it in God's eyes? Have you had people come to you with that and and where do you send them? Yeah. So, you know, before I get to what I would say to them, the underlying thing that is central to the Catholic and evangelical approach to infertility is an anxiety about sex, right? That's like, oh, that's the yeah. main thing of that course, I realized yeah. as Rachel was talking is that <laughs> the issue is what sex is allowed and what sex is not allowed and what is sex for. And if sex is for making babies in marriage, then IVF or other infertility treatments threaten that understanding mm. that sex is just for procreation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so other ways of, of making children threaten the rule that that's what sex is for. And right. so that is the central problem with IVF in the Catholic church. You can read, you know, the Pope's stance on IVF and that it starts with that, right? Yeah. Um, it's supposed to be sex that makes babies. So, you know, IVF isn't sex. So that's the problem, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't know that. Yes. Um <laughs> Yes. <laughs> so it, you know, one of the ways that the, uh, that Episcopalians figure out what God wants for us and for our lives is through tradition. And much of tradition is held in our book of common prayer. The book of common prayer, um, is the text that holds the script for all of the services, the worship services that we pray together in the Episcopal Church. So um, in the marriage ceremony, uh, the preface for marriage begins, Dearly Beloved, which is the very famous marriage ceremony that most TV shows use, (laughs) TV and movies. Um, And the second paragraph says, the union of husband and wife, and in the Episcopal Church, two people, um, because we do affirm same-sex marriage. So the union of two people in heart, body, and mind is intended by God for their mutual joy. That's great. And there's a semicolon, right? So that's that's a, a full thought that the union, that marriage um, in heart, body, and mind is intended by God for their mutual joy. Mm-hmm. Also for the help and comfort given one another in prosperity and adversity. And when it is God's will for the procreation of children and their nurture and the knowledge and love of the Lord. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't say anything about sex. It just says that if you have decided with God that you want children, that's also what marriage is for. So how those kids are made, right? It's not, it's, it's much like Rachel was saying, um, you know, the law, right? So the tradition doesn't say anything about how those children need to come to be in the lives of the parents, but just that part of marriage can be raising children. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I would initially sort of in answer to your question, what would I share with people who come to me? Like everything in life 
This is about discernment, figuring out what God wants for you. So it feels really disappointing now, whatever the circumstance is that feels disappointing or upsetting. Um, and let's figure out together what God wants for you. Like mm -hmm. what are the actual options, right? Mm -hmm. So um, I often turn to people who are looking for scripture to the Psalms and that's something that we share with, with Judaism. The Psalms are, you know, really about lamenting with God and trusting that God loves us so much and knowing that God knows us so deeply. Mm -hmm. So that's a great starting place for people who are coming, feeling very upset and, and lost. Mm -hmm. And needing that comfort and, yeah. and yeah, that processing and yeah. And Rachel, what about for you? So Julia, I'm really, I'm really appreciating what you're saying. You know, when I'm teaching a class on theology, I present the texts and then I like people to come to their own conclusion. But if someone is in pain and someone is saying, did, did God do this to me to punish me? Or did God make, like, why did God make me this way? Then I'm very happy to share my own theology, which is, it's not about that. You know, God loves you and that's unconditional. And that's the base, that's the foundation. If this is what we're going to talk about, and we're just going to start from a place of God loves you. And from there, we, we can enter into a conversation about the pain, you know, because a person would only come with that theology if they're in pain. Mm -hmm. And so we can talk about their pain. And um, I, I try to be very clear to, with people that I am not a therapist. And if they mm -hmm. have to go beyond a certain point, then I need to refer them to a therapist because I'm not qualified. Like, I don't want to mess with people's inner psyche. I'm not qualified right. to do that. Um, at least, you know, I'm not licensed to do that. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. Instinctively, you may be qualified, but you don't have the license to. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, we could certainly talk about places in the Jewish Bible where infertility is an issue. I mean, infertility is an issue almost right from the beginning. Almost, mm -hmm. not quite. But you know, starting with um, Sarah, mm -hmm. you know, poor Sarah. For the non-Jews listening, tell the story of Sarah. Okay, so poor Sarah. Sarah was Abraham's wife and God promised Abraham to have progeny as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the grains of sand on the seashore. And his wife was not getting pregnant mm. and not getting pregnant and not getting pregnant and not getting pregnant. And then at some point, Abraham was very concerned and he engaged his wife's handmaid mm. and had a baby with her, right? And that was Ishmael. Mm. And then many years later, um, angels came to Abraham and said, your wife, Sarah, is going to get pregnant. And there was a lot of laughter. But that's when they had Isaac. Yeah. There's also, I mean, really powerful stuff about the relationship between Sarah and Hagar, Hagar oh, being yes. the mother of Ishmael. Yeah. And that sort of like jealousy about, um, you know, who can get pregnant and who can't. And yes. um, there's this idea, like, again, there's this cultural idea that the Bible, like biblical marriage, you know, we have to have <laughs> biblical marriage and traditional marriage. And then you just look to write like just the first story about, you know, this is the patriarch of yeah. Judaism and the way the family is made is not, you know, traditional. Um, yes. So just turning to the scripture being really liberating. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And with that, you know, I would wonder if someone could interpret that as, oh, well, the angels came. How can I make the angels came? Okay. I have to start 
praying all the time and following Jewish law and doing everything I can to make those angels come. And then if the angels don't come, I mean, that's a very literal interpretation. But, you know, that uh, I would say my version of that when I was going through it was, oh, just relax and it'll happen. Oh, you know, oh my friend went on vacation and then she got pregnant by accident. So yeah. I'm waiting around trying to relax. Meanwhile, that's impossible um, and have it happen. But, you know, you can't induce the angels to come. Have you had someone that's come to you and said, I'm doing everything that it says I should do and it's still not happening? And, you know, there's no advice for that. What, relax. That's ridiculous. Right. <laughs> it's more like, oh my God, I feel, I feel you. Let me give you a hug. Mm-hmm. Let's sit together. Yeah. Let's just sit together. You know, depending on the person, maybe we're sitting in God's presence. I mean, in my mind, we always are, but depending on who I'm talking to and how comfortable they are with God, let's, let's just sit together because this is really painful. I mean, even talking about it at this moment, I feel myself on the edge of tears. Mm-hmm. This is really painful. I feel your pain. I don't know what the answer is. Mm -hmm. I don't know why it's not working. I wish I did. Mm -hmm. I would tell you. Your doctor doesn't know why it's not working or your doctor would change it. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's important to like these Bible stories that have miracles in them, right? It can be really easy to take away, I think, a damaging reading being that like, if you pray hard enough, God will do this thing for you. Or, you know, if if you're not praying hard enough, that's why this thing is happening to you. You know, and and really what, what the story of Abraham and Sarah is, right, is about trusting God. And God is saying explicitly to them, this thing is going to happen. And they're not trusting that. And then it happens, right? So it is like, there's just so much unknown in the baby making process. And there's so much waiting and there's so much sitting and waiting and not knowing what's going to happen. And I think for me, one of the things that got me through it was just being like, I have to believe that whatever happens is what's going to happen. You know, like, <laughs> now it's about sitting with God, knowing that God loves you as Rachel has been saying, right. So God knows you and that, that what is happening is God's will for your life. Right. So, um, not that there's something that you can get or unlock. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Prayer is not magical. Mm-hmm. You, you can't, you can't control God with your prayer. You know, right. you can't, you can't control, you can't make God give you what you want. If you just pray hard enough, it doesn't, I don't believe it works. It's not way. a transaction. <laughs> it's not a transaction. Um, and I'm wondering, I was thinking about what you, when you read from um, the marriage ceremony, Julia, it talks about mutual joy. Mm-hmm. And I think that is something I interviewed a woman this season who is child-free after infertility. And that was her path to joy. Joy for her was not killing herself forever and ever with IVF treatments. Joy for her was moving away from that and creating a family of two with dogs and her husband. And so have you both encountered that situation where maybe all the medical uh, results and the tests and the attempts and everything are sort of pointing to that, that someone really needs to take care of themselves by not having children and moving forward? Have you counseled anyone in that situation? Well, I think absolutely right. Like the process for anybody, any way you're trying to have kids, right? Because of all that waiting and all the stress, right? Like you can just lose yourself in that. And certainly if you're in a relationship during that, like you can lose the 
the mutual joy, right? Mm, so right. part of the discernment of figuring out what to do and what is the way forward for you has to be like, how can you find joy in this process? You know, so I think if I'm talking to someone about the ethics of IVF, right, it's like, okay, so how, how can you do that and be good to each other if, if you're in a relationship, right, or be good to yourself or like make sure that you're taking care of yourself. Um, and I think for sure the, the result of that could be like, this isn't what's for me right now, mm-hmm. you know, absolutely, 100%. Do you feel though that they might think they're failing God if they're not bringing a child in, if they're not continuing the line? I'm not sure that I've ever encountered someone um, who's struggling with that question, right? It's more just about desire, mm-hmm. right? So like desire to be a parent, desire to have a relationship with a child and to have a family that's defined by having children. And so that's a loss, right? Like figuring out that loss, but not like a, not a failing God, <laughs> And what about Rachel for you? I mean, you're obviously in the progressive track there, so you don't necessarily follow that about go forth and procreate, but have you had anyone come to you and say that this is what God wants for me and I'm not doing it or? No, nobody's ever come to me and said, this is what what God wants for me. People have certainly come and said, this is what I want. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But because there are different ways to build a family, being fruitful and multiplying doesn't need to be about having a a baby that comes out of you or your spouse's body. Mm -hmm. You know, it can be about surrogacy. It can be about adopting. I guess I am in the more liberal stream, but um, there are many ways to build a family. Well, it's interesting. I was thinking about Moses. (laughs) I mean, that's a story of adoption. That's That's right. That's not a story of birth. And that's That's right. That's right in there. Does that come into your counseling as well? Are people coming to you about adoption or being a single parent? Where What are the different types of well, situations? So I want to go back more to the question about making a decision to just stop trying and to just oh, yeah. be child-free. And to, so people have come to me suffering. And there's a point when you surrender into the suffering and it gets it's not suffering anymore. Maybe it's pain, but there's a difference between pain and suffering. You know, pain is inevitable. We are all going to feel pain. So when someone comes and they're suffering and they're really suffering, then that's also conversations about what is the point of living? Mm -hmm. You know, does God really want you to be suffering this way? Yeah. Now I'm putting it in the, in terms of fertility. Do you really believe that God wants you to suffer this much because Mm -hmm. you don't yet have a child? Mm-hmm. And then there's also separating out having a baby from building a family. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you, for me, I wanted to be pregnant. I wanted to know what it was like to feel that baby growing inside my body. But I also wanted a child. And for me, they, they could have been two completely separate things. Mm-hmm. And, and I was starting out in a different place than a lot of people start out because I was already older. And I had already, you know, suffered with, am I ever going to? have a partner? Am I ever going to get married? You Mm. know, it's the same thing they said, they say, relax and you'll get pregnant. (laughs) Don't look for a relationship. Right. Right. It's the same advice. Don't want it. Yeah, completely. (laughs) (laughs) And so I was already, we got married when I was 40. It wasn't like Mm -hmm. I met him when I was in high school and I already knew I was going in with a deficit and I knew that adopting was going to have to be acceptable, at least for me, because I might not be able to get pregnant. 
And mm-hmm. I don't know that I would have had the resources to hire or to, to engage a surrogate. So I think there's a lot of deep thinking and a lot of self-awareness that really helps mm-hmm. in the process. And that can include therapy. It can include an exploration of your own relationship with God. Mm-hmm. And how much does God really want you to suffer? Mm-hmm. And that's also theology, I guess. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. I don't think God wants us to suffer at all. Pain's inevitable. We're all going to, you know, hurt ourselves or get hurt. But mm-hmm. how much we carry that as suffering is negotiable somehow. Right, right. You don't have to, you don't have to suffer. One thing that's really wonderful about talking to both of you is we're really looking for the joy. We're looking for the alleviation of the suffering. Um, and we're looking for the love that comes with faith, with religion, with a relationship with God. Do you feel like because there are more conservative, orthodox, evangelical, um, strict pieces of both of your religions, of all religions, of course, do you find yourself becoming an advocate? You see people who think it's wrong to do this or that procedure when it may ultimately result in happiness for them. And it makes me you know, energized and furious and wanting to help them. So I'll, I'll go back to Julia first. No, I mean, I absolutely understand my call to the priesthood as like, initially what, what drew me to this work was just to let the world know that the faith that I grew up in loved me from the beginning and that it wasn't, you know, just to share the privilege of growing up in a faith community that wasn't damaging to me, that didn't abuse me for being mm-hmm. gay or for being who I am, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the Episcopal Church is on a journey and it wasn't always so, and it isn't always true everywhere, right? But just to say, like, when we got in touch, I was like, great, I would love so much for the Christian perspective on this to, to include this perspective, you know? Yeah. So yeah. often the Christian perspective sounds very different. Yeah. Yeah. And what for you, Rachel? Yeah. So um, uh, I, I'm involved with Parents Via Egg Donation. For and that's a group. People can find that group. PVED.org. PVED.org. Okay. Is it a Jewish group or it's no. all parents of all faith? Okay. I love them. Yeah. I love them. I can't speak highly enough about this group of totally non-judgmental, supportive people who are exploring becoming parents through egg donation or who have already become parents through egg donation. Oh, if okay. Has a question? They know they can come to me. You're there as a resource for people. Who, I'm there. I'm there as a yeah, resource. Right. Yeah. I mean. Uh, right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I just have one last question. Is there anything you feel we haven't covered? Um, any other perspectives? And also, assuming there are people listening that are struggling right now, that are maybe suffering right now, um, would you want any last thoughts to leave them with? And. I don't know who should go first. How about Reverend Julia? Yeah, I would just say like, there's so many possibilities for making families. And and I have friends who have done it in all different ways. And there can be stigma around certain ways that people decide to have children. I know some people who have who are foster parents who are very judgmental of, of other ways of making families and, mm. you know, and there's a, a real difficulty for people who can't bear children versus people who can bear children. And, and the cost, it's like such a barrier and that has class and race implications as well. So I just think there's so many different things to think about. And what I really urge 
everyone is to just like have grace with each other and mm. like hear each other's stories and just work together to share information and have open lines of communication and and not worry about <laughs> not worry about what other people think and so within the faith side of that you know i i really do feel like an advocate for letting people know that there are houses of faith that are open and accepting of the ways that the different ways that people make families. Mm -hmm. Um, and I feel like there's, there's just like a lack of knowledge about that. And so for anyone listening to, to this podcast who feels underrepresented in conversations around making babies, like I feel privileged to be another voice in that conversation and just say, like, urge people to seek out people who they can talk to about these things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How about Rachel? That was really beautiful, Julia. (laughs) (laughs) I love the idea of having grace. I think that that is a word that doesn't always make its way into secular conversations. And I think that's a really important word and and something to really consider. And as well, when when you were speaking, I was thinking about secondary infertility, which is someone has more than a child or two or three and wants another one. And they bear the brunt of a lot of animosity from other people struggling to have their first child as they got it from me when I was struggling to have my first child. And I didn't understand what that was all about. So that's, that's another group that really struggles to find that support and comfort. Yeah. 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 So I think if I were, if I were to add, um, because Julia, what you just said is so beautiful and Sam, what you just said is so true and so profound, everybody's suffering. Mm-hmm. every single person is suffering. I mean, isn't that the, the, we're not here to talk about Buddhism, but isn't that the basis of Buddhism? <laughs> Everybody is suffering. You know, we, we Jews don't use the word grace a whole lot, but Julia, I love what you said. You know, we have to allow ourselves to exist in a state of grace. God loves us and mm-hmm. God wants what's best for us. Like not in that hard authoritarian way, but in that loving embrace kind of, let me, let me hold you while you go through this. Yeah. Now I'm tearing up. (laughs) And so, you know, if there's, if there's any advice that I could give listeners is to just be so kind to yourself, but Mm -hmm. be kind to the people around you because that's real. That's all God wants of us is to love ourselves and to love each other. Everything comes from that, whether it's the thing you wanted, which is children or something else. Right, right. Oh, that's a beautiful place to end. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, both of you, Reverend Julia and Rabbi Rachel. This has just been a complete privilege for me and a a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's really great. It was great to meet you, Rachel. Oh, it's great to meet you, Julia. Thank you. And um, thank you, Sam, too. Thanks for hanging out with the priest, the rabbi, and me. I'm so grateful to Julia and Rachel for sharing their time, their knowledge, and they said it, their grace with us. And I'm so happy to see you've been sending in your questions for our very special season two finale with therapist Savannah Sandfield. She's here to help us with this crazy roller coaster ride. So get your questions to ivfupodcast at gmail.com or DM me on Instagram at ivfupodcast by 1111. The IVFU podcast is produced by me, Sam Shaper, and Emmeline Summerton. Audio mastered by Logan Heftel. 
Thanks to Chris Benelli for the late night Pro Tools parties, George Strayton for marriage, and Gary Scott for greasing the wheels. IVFU is a production of Inside Voices Media. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at IVFU Podcast. You can download our theme song, Freakin' Love, at IVFUPodcast.com. And we'd love for you to review us on Apple Podcasts and spread the word to anyone who might be helped by these conversations. You can also be a huge help by leaving us a tip of any size, whatever you can afford, on Venmo and PayPal.me at IVFU Podcast. Thank you. And thanks for listening. I'm happy we shared this time together because it's all about being a family. And I'm